Hello and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, bizarre, and maniacal films of the VHS era. Tonight we are talking about what is one of, in my opinion, the treasures of straight-to-video, low-budget horror filmmaking, late 70s, early 80s, and that is Criminally Insane, as well as its sequel, Crazy Fat Ethel 2. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, as of this broadcast, you can find both 1975's Criminally Insane and 1987's Criminally Insane 2 on YouTube for free. The first entry can also be found on Amazon, and although the sequel is harder to come by, it's likely that way for good reason. And then you, like us, will understand the importance for any creator, whether artist, author, craftsman, or hobbyist, to determine whether a work in progress is worth finishing. It's important to know that not everything you labor on in your life will be successful, no matter how much work you put into it. So it's imperative to have the strength to pull the trigger and end the project. Don't waste your time, and more importantly, don't waste your audience's time on something that's not going to work out in the end. I, I mean, it worked out for Nick Miller because he, he made a career out of doing this. This is mostly in regards to the second film here. Yeah, well, I should I should say that this week I watched five Nick Millard movies. I watched Satan's Black Wedding, which was followed up with Criminally Insane, Criminally Insane 2, a.k.a. Crazy Fat Ethel 2, and then I watched the two Death Nurse films. And in four of those five movies he uses footage from Criminally Insane. The same footage, mind you. So he really milked that cow. Like, he got a lot of mileage out of this 60-minute movie. Maybe I'm misunderstanding the overall problem with the sequel to Criminally Insane. Because I got the impression that he started making a sequel finished with only like 35 minutes worth of footage and realized oh my god i have to pad this out yeah but, no i i no, think you're it, telling me this is this is his calling card yeah i think it was the other way around i think he knew he wanted to reuse scenes from criminally insane and had to figure out a way to create a wraparound my impression based on watching interviews with him this week is that this was a man who really only cared about the, the the money and getting movies on store shelves so he said like look all you need is a good title and enough footage to fill a tape and if you do that you're made and he's like i lucked upon a good title criminally insane and that's why it's had this long life because the the title is so good and so he just milked it define long life because i had not heard of this until you brought it up i mean it has a dvd it has a blu-ray release i think how much money could you make off doing something like this well let's see he he criminally insane cost thirty thousand dollars to make 
I can't imagine that any of the sequ- or pseudo sequels uh, cost very much money because they're all shot on camcorder and they all use half their footage from Criminally Insane. Um, so I, I don't, I mean, just getting royalties from these cheap ass movies seems to have done it. I mean, if, if you're not familiar with Nick Millard, uh, all of these movies, aside from, I think, Criminally Insane, all the other ones are filmed in his house. They all use the same cast who were friends of his for the most part. And so uh, I think he was able to do this remarkably cheap. Well, I totally missed the mark on that one. Uh, I, I really thought that, you know, he was just trying to salvage this this movie that just wasn't working out by padding it with footage from the, the first one. I, clearly, that's not the case. I think he was probably trying to recapture his one success. So it, before Criminally Insane, he basically did like softcore porn, which I've heard is very strange, but I've never seen any of it. Um, I, I can imagine that. And then he made Criminally Insane, and he used a pseudonym for it. He released it under the name Nick Phillips. And then in interviews, he says that he regrets that because Criminally Insane turned out to be his only success. And so he wished he put his real name on it because, you know, he made all this money that was able to finance his continued career, essentially. So was this his high point? He never he never reached this apex ever again. Right. And I think he was trying to recapture that glory with the other movies. But um, so we've been talking about Nick Millard. We should also talk about our star. Um, This is uh. The main character, the uh, the title character, Crazy Fat Ethel, is played by Priscilla Alden. What do you think about her performances? In the first movie, she's great. Uh, she actually has a lot of subtle mannerisms that really help her sell this, you know, legitimately insane character. Um, She's very consistent about uh, looking at the floor when lying, either during or right after. She keeps that up for both films, but in the first one, it's just the it's just more prevalent because she has to lie to way more law enforcement than, than, the, than the sequel. I I think she's great. I think they couldn't have found a, a better actress to play this role, and. I, I think this has been discussed before, not on our podcast, but in like, um, unlike other videos and stuff of people who do this sort of thing. But you know, it, it takes a it takes a strong character. I mean, uh, an individual's character, not the one in the film, to play as a role that is essentially. Um, very derogatory towards something about your physical appearance, right? So she is obviously a big woman in real life. And this is a movie about a big woman killing people because they're getting in the way of her food. Hell, the uh, the VHS has a big label on the front that says 250 pounds of maniacal fury. 
it, it kind of reminds it reminds me of uh, you know the actress that played the uh the mafia woman in the goonies and she also played the mother and don't throw mama from the train yeah they do have a similarity yeah i think it's it's one of those situations where like sh- that woman was always cast as like these like ugly mean nothing rede- redeemable people but in real life she was this really nice woman who was apparently uh like beloved by all but yeah. then she you know she, these are the roles she gets cast in she gets typecast in i feel like you know priscilla could get thrown into that same that same realm yeah well she she was a theater actress when nick millard found her for this part and i think this was her second movie and she said in the interviews that she was just excited to get a lead part and that it was she thought it was really fun to play a villain but when i first saw this movie like i don't know as a teenager renting it i was like this performance is way too authentic like this person has to be like this has to be their persona in real life I don't mean maniacal killer, but I mean the look and the behavior and um, the mannerisms. I I just, I I thought there's no way this woman did this as a performance. But this week, after watching her in interviews and after watching her in another series of movies playing a different character, she is totally not like this. Like, this is a complete departure from how she comes across in other parts. And, uh, I think this is one of the best performances in horror. Like, it's so authentic. It feels so real. I don't know if that carries over to the second, but that's, you know, it's probably the fact that everything around her performance is so bad in the sequel that it's probably hard to objectively gauge her actual performance. Yeah, I I have some comment on that, but I'm going to wait till we get to the story. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the short... The short message here is that the first movie is worth watching and the second you should just forget exists. I, I won't go that far, but I'll, I'll save my um, what praise I have for the second one um, until review time. But let me talk about the VHS because this is one of my favorite tapes in my collection just because of the the box and everything. Um, but I also like the movie. It's bright yellow, and I already said uh, on the front it says 250 pounds of maniacal fury, and it has Priscilla Alden holding up a bloody butcher knife. And then on the back it says, a 250-pound female psychopath is prematurely released from an asylum for the criminally insane. What little is left of her mind soon gives way as her gluttonous appetite for food is shockingly equaled by her appetite for blood. A must for horror fans. I think that's how every bag of the box should be. (laughs) Like, don't give too much of the plot away. Just get me excited for the movie. Yeah, that's actually pretty refreshing. They didn't spoil the whole thing. No. I mean, what little plot there is to to spoil here. But um, whatever this movie is, it's not a plot piece. Uh, No. It's it's not an engrossing story. Yeah, the the first movie isn't about plot. It's about the character relationship dynamics. And, uh, you know, really cheap practical effects. (laughs) Emphasis on cheap. Yeah, as in red paint cheap.
But before the, we play the trailer, I'll say one other thing about Nick Millard, which is after baptizing myself in his work this week, um, I have mixed feelings about him. Like, on the one hand, he seems to be a hack with no artistic vision and no talent, just enjoys the fact that he can film things in his house and then, like, get a paycheck from it. But on the other hand, this is a man who, like, is entirely self-driven, who has, by, like, the unlikeliest of chances um, and, and circumstances, is made movies for 30 years. It just pumping them out with the same group of people in the same locations and like just telling stories. And that's really admirable. Um, in my opinion, I mean, he's made lots, a lot more movies than I have. So, um, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about him. Well, you know, there's two types of people. There's the people that go out and do things. And then there's, uh, other people who sit behind keyboards and make fun of them. And at the end of the day, at least the, the first person is doing something productive. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I give him some credit. Right. Um, all right. So let's play the trailer for criminally insane. And then we'll get into the story. In a few moments, two people will die. I'm going to have to kill you. Suspense that will shatter your nerves as Fat Ethel, with a maniac's cunning, terrorizes her numerous victim. Do you think I'm going to let you starve me? Another kind of monster is loose, and death follows each time that Ethel reaches for the meat cleaver. Gluttonous Ethel, whose love of food in enormous amounts was equaled only by her immense joy in killing. What's this blood all over the floor? Wow, the trailer really just ends abruptly like that. <laughs> <laughs> before we before we talk about it, um, one other thing I wanted to mention about Nick Miller that I thought was was really funny is in one of the interviews um, I watched, he said that making this movie um, after his other work uh, was kind of like a step up from the gutter to the curb. <laughs> And I think that tip that is uh, that's very evocative of this movie. Um, what do you think of the score that we heard throughout the trailer? Isn't there just the one piano theme? I mean, it's mostly piano. There's also some, I, I heard guitar, violin, and flute at times, but it's all like jangly and off key and almost like free jazz, but that's giving it too much credit. I suppose they just kind of handed someone in a room this instrument and just said, hey, just pluck a few solemn notes and we'll call it a wrap. I'm, I mean, I'm biased because I actually like free jazz and I, I like this movie, um, but I think the score is really effective. Like anytime there's that bare minimum off key notes, it gives me the impression that like something is wrong. Or like I'm watching something I shouldn't be. And I think it fits this movie perfectly. 
Yeah, it's not fancy, but it works. It's effective. Compare this to the sequel, where I'm pretty sure there is no music except for what's in the first one. <laughs> in, yeah. the, in the flashbacks. Yeah. So when we op- when the movie opens, our main character, Ethel, played by Priscilla Alden, is in a hospital or an insane asylum, but we see her like being injected and put in a straitjacket and given electric shock therapy. And uh, at one point, her grandmother comes to visit, and the doctor tells us that Ethel has severe paranoid manifestations, long periods of depression, violent outbursts, and the doctor says it's against my better judgment to have her released. But she does get released for some reason. So this was made in 1975. Am I right in thinking that electric shock therapy was basically the cure for anything at this point? I really think they just subjected, you know, everybody to it. I definitely know it was um, overprescribed back in the day, but I don't remember to what degree because I am not a psychology major. I mean, I know they still use it for some things, but... Yeah, like under anesthetic. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But back then, nope. (laughs) Um, Actually, apparently it's still used to treat a catatonia, major depressive disorder, and bipolar disorder as late as 2018. Yeah, no, I'm I'm I know it's still in use. I know if it's an accepted practice for some ailments. But yeah, I think at that point like they didn't know how to treat mental health issues, so this was the one thing they did for everything. It was like their cure-all. Because like, yeah, just fuck it if it works, great. Otherwise, you know, patients already done for. How much worse could it be? <laughs> so So, yeah, Ethel gets out and the doctor also tells her grandmother to try to do something about her weight. And um, at the the whole movie, we see Ethel in the same outfit. I don't know how to describe it. It's like almost like a schoolgirl outfit, like a white blouse with a brown dress that looks like a paper sack over top of it. Yeah, like Like, suspender dress. Yeah. um, Yeah. what did you th- what did you think of this look? I didn't really give much thought to to what she was wearing until a little later in the movie when her outfit does change because this one's so boring it doesn't really stand out. But later when she switches to some more uh, pizzazz, it sticks out like a sore thumb because it's way more colorful than this drab shit she's wearing in the beginning. Yeah, the the it had never really stood out to me before, but this time watching the first one and the second one kind of back to back, I thought it was really funny that when she gets released in the second one, she puts on the same outfit. And I'm pretty sure it's the literal same outfit because in the second movie, she's probably 100 pounds lighter and you can tell the outfit's way too big for her. So anyway, I just thought like, wow, this look is really central to this character. I didn't realize it before, but I really think it's it's not just her performance. It's the look, because if she looked like a normal person, like with normal clothes and her hair done normally, like you would not get the same impression by her hair done normally. You mean given some kind of like Hollywood treatment? 
I just mean some kind of style <laughs> or cut. It just kind of hangs straight, right? Yeah, absolutely nothing was done to this hair for this film. Yeah. Because again, I've seen her in interviews and her hair looks nice. So it, it, this was not just, I used to think this was so authentic. It had to be her, but no, this is a, a real performance and look. Quick question before we go further. Was obesity a bigger issue in the seventies or as big, a, it, or was it like an emerging issue in the seventies compared to now? Like obviously obesity rates are much higher now, but what about like the seventies? Where was the level at? Yeah, I, I really don't know. I kind of imagine that it was similar to today. Okay, so worldwide obesity has tripled since 1975. Convenient that that's the year this movie was made. Okay, so in 1990, the prevalence was 30.5%. So I'm just not sure just how rare was obesity in the 70s. And would that have contributed to the strangeness of her character at the time of this movie's release. Yeah, I, I don't know how common it was, but I know that it, it, I imagine, and I think Nick Millard kind of hints at this, that the origin of this movie was thinking, wouldn't it be funny if there was like a big fat person killing people? And so they, they marketed the movie around it. I mean, the front says 250 pounds of maniacal fury. They were, they were playing up a novelty, I think, of here's an overweight female killer. Like, you haven't seen that before, you know? I'm now trying to think of like fat killers in media. I, I mean, I did think this was interesting in an interview. Um, Millard said that he thought most slasher movies or most horror movies were like horribly misogynistic and he couldn't make one. He was like, I couldn't make like a Friday 13th movie because I wouldn't want to put an idea in the head of a real crazy guy who would go out and kill women. But he said, you know, criminally insane and all his movies really was designed to be subversive. Like it was designed to um, present a woman as the killer. Wow. He, Saint, Saint Miller over here. He, yeah. He said, uh, he said, if you think about it, all of the women's lib people should be praising me. Uh, uh, all right. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, this certainly isn't the first, um, character exhibition of a female killer we have done on this show but is it the earliest i mean i think that there was already a trend of like the evil hag in the movies right like the older woman who was meddling and doing evil i mean think like betty davis types um but that's not really what's in this movie we just have this as our primary protagonist antagonist um someone who you just don't see people in movies that look like this yeah yeah you do not and it gives the movie that together with the setting gives it such an authenticity like um the the house on the dvd they talk about the house where the movie was filmed is still there but it's been given a remodel now it's not so dilapidated and um Millard was like, we needed something dilapidated. Like, that's the sort of environment this movie needs to be in. House didn't really seem like it was in that bad a condition. 
No, but it's uh, it's not like a new remodeled house. Oh, definitely not. Yeah, it you know it. You're right. It does feel like a real house, although the art that is uh, spread out among the house feels like it was uh, very intentionally placed. Because you have this grandma who's been living there, but all the art is from like around the world from someone who would have been like very well traveled. There's uh like there's like Japanese like printings above the couch there's like old uh like indian buddhist statues on shelves etc i'm sure i'll notice more as uh as we go on but yeah i I mean i'm sure they didn't have like a set designer i'm not sure if this was actually nick millard's house i know all the other movies are filmed in his house but maybe he lived in this location as well i'm not sure anyway let's get back to the story so we see Ethel on her first morning at her grandma's. Uh, she is making breakfast and she's making an entire package of bacon and a whole carton of eggs. <laughs> what did uh, what do you think about this breakfast? I mean, they're just really introducing the character right off the bat, huh? It, she's uh, Priscilla Alden, uh, apparently in real life, was like disgusted by this. Like, even though she was overweight, she did not eat very much food. And she would have to force herself to eat like this to be for the scenes where she's eating. But yeah, I don't, she, really, I don't really recall her actually eating a lot of food during the film. It's just like in front of her. There's a scene where she's eating like a huge bowl of ice cream, like a whole carton oh, of God. ice cream. Yo, is, was it ice cream? Yeah. I was trying to figure out what kind of dessert that was. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the her grandma keeps, you know, as the doctor said, telling her, like, you need, you need to lose weight. And when she brings up losing weight, Ethel says this. Did you know they tried to kill me? That goddamn Jew doctor gave them orders not to give me enough to eat. Two lousy boiled eggs and a piece of dry toast for breakfast. They were trying to save money and starve me while they were at it. Dr. Gerard just wants you to lose a little weight. Why? What do I need to lose weight for? For your heart, Ethel. My heart's just fine as long as my stomach's not empty. Does does Ethel come across as a convincingly mentally ill person to you? Yes. Yeah, my... So I watched this with my wife, and she had never seen it before. And she was, she mentioned something about like Priscilla Alden, like this performance was, was ridiculous. Like nobody, um, she found like, there's a moment where Ethel's lying and Amanda was like, uh, yeah, this is horrible acting. And I was like, you can think about it like that, but this is actually how a lot of mentally ill people behave. Yeah the the monotone voice with just like a hint of snideness and like fury um the shifting eyes the like obvious um attempt at subterfuge like these these are realistic uh traits of some mentally ill people to me and some not mentally ill people even (laughs) yeah I just mean her her performance is convincing. But what did you think about her anti-Semitism? That plays into the to the whole schizophrenic character, right? I mean, it's that's a really common for 
you know, schizophrenics to buy into conspiracy theories and like secret cabals controlling everything from the shadows. So I'm sure there are uh, like generational changes in that formula. Like whoever, you know, they be is probably going to change depending on their history from whatever they're growing up. But in this time period, it's the Jews. Also, I so we've talked before about Stephen Thrower's book, Nightmare USA. So I was reading about this film in there and he he's pointed out that the, you know, a lot of the time Ethel can come across as like a satirical or like blackly uh, black comedic um, performance, but the anti-Semitism keeps you from identifying with her. It like if you start to sympathize for her, it pushes you away. It maintains her villainy. I thought that was. I mean, I I'd never I wouldn't have thought about it like that, but I thought that was a good point. I suppose. I mean, I I would have a hard time sympathizing with this character regardless of that though i mean she just racks up a body count of innocent mostly innocent people yeah the body count in this movie is actually alarmingly high yeah it's like this movie takes place in one location in a house and it uh it rivals like friday 13th movies for the body count and what what six people all together yeah yeah that sounds right so anyway, later that night, we see Ethel sneak down to try to get some food, but the f- refrigerator is empty and all of the food is locked in a cabinet. And uh, she is furious. She gets increasingly larger knives to try to knock the, the lock off with, um, but the grandmother catches her. Uh, and this is the first time that someone's really gotten in between her and her food. The grandma says that they're only going to eat three meals a day and that they're not going to use the fridge until Ethel gets her eating under control. She says it's costing more than unemployment to feed her. And Ethel goes after her with a butcher knife. Stabs her in the back, too. Yeah, I mean. All right, so. This is one, I'll bring this up again later, but one of the things that separates this movie from the second one to me and her performance is anytime she kills someone in this movie, it's totally reactionary. Like, it's not planned. It happens as a result of her, like, panic or fury that somebody is either going to discover her or take food away from her. And there's no art for lack of a better term to it. It's like, how can I kill this person as soon as possible? So it it would come across as more brutal for that reason, I think. But the effects are so silly that it's hard. Yeah, I mean, there's the, the gore effects are clearly just red paint. <laughs> um, I, I don't even think they tried to mix it with anything to try to make it more believable. No, nope. very, very thick. It's over everything. There's like red paint everywhere. Yeah, this house definitely needed a remodel afterwards. <laughs> for for some reason, when Ethel runs, like when she's chasing her grandmother, it's really funny to me. It's not just because like she's a big person. There's something about her running that just makes me laugh. Is it like a like a child running, perhaps? 
kind of it's kind of like when someone like jogs across the street but they're not really going any faster <laughs> that's what it seems like but anyway she tries to take the key away from grandma and even when she's dead she can't get it out of her hand so she just keeps stabbing her hand over and over again and it's clear that like ethel does not care about anybody like this is her grandma who's taking her in and she could care less if it involves if it takes away her food and i found it i find it actually kind of effective like the plainness of it like we just see her going about her business and her grandma's body is just lying there on the floor it's kind of disturbing actually it's nice that they try to take um you know the the decay process into consideration for the plot even though it doesn't really follow what would logically happen in real life i like that they at least tried to make that a plot point um really though this is one of those films where you don't uh you don't really question the uh the the actual physics behind like the violence and the aftermath you're you're kind of just here for the experience yeah this is a movie you have to just experience she drags her grandma's body up the stairs and her head thumps on every step and apparently they really did this with the actress no way yeah and the actress was the actress was on um was interviewed saying like yeah this was like it really did hurt but you know um nick millard said she was a trooper and uh priscilla said this was the scariest part of the movie for her was having to keep drag this poor woman up the stairs i mean yeah they obviously dragged actually dragged her up the stairs but i didn't think they, they thought the thumping was uh maybe edited in or something apparently it was real oh yeah it's really harsh because i was wincing when i thought it was something artificial no stunt actor for grandmas uh, not in this film not in nick miller's world so after this uh her first murder maybe her first we never find out why she actually got sent to the asylum to begin with do you think she has a history of like this kind of violence maybe uh, i think they're intentionally not saying much just because yeah. they don't want to bother to have to go through a backstory but the obviously the family dynamic here is messed up you know mom's not in the picture grandma has to raise the kid well and then the you know grown-ass woman <laughs> yeah. she's not a kid anymore yeah um well her sister's not really independent either as we'll find out ethel uses her newfound freedom to call the grocer to have groceries delivered and, and she wants exactly like last time except uh four half gallons of ice cream instead of two but the the grocer is kind of suspicious because he's like you owe us you know 80 dollars um and my boss says i have to get that from you and ethel scrounges all over the house but all she can find is 450. she even she, takes all her grandma's collectible coins yeah, cannibalizes a coin collection <laughs> yeah so uh it was 80 dollars, right yeah Eighty dollars in nineteen seventy-five was the equivalent of about four hundred dollars in today's money. 
That's outrageous. Yeah, that's how much they were they were behind. Well, of course, the the guy who delivers it is not going to accept the four fifty instead of the eighty dollars. So she bashes him over the head with a bottle of wine, and then she uses the broken neck of the bottle to stab him repeatedly. Like this is vicious. Yeah, he's unconscious and then gets stabbed to death. Yeah, with a broken bottle. Like, again, ignoring the effects, very brutal death scenes throughout this entire film. Yeah, I and think the- it, it really makes it effective, even though the effects are, are cheap in themselves. And, and this is going to sound like a criticism, but I actually like it. The tone of this movie is really hard to pin down. Like, I can't tell if they're trying to be comedic or if they're trying to be disturbing. But it ends up walking this weird, like, shadow realm in between. (laughs) I mean, definitely going into this film, if you know the concept of fat woman kills to get food, you go in expecting a horror comedy, but it doesn't play out like that at all. In fact, I I think they tackled this about as tastefully as they could have. Yeah. Which is really strange to say. Well, just after killing the delivery boy, Ethel's sister shows up. And the first thing she says is, I don't believe it, but I think you've gotten even fatter. (laughs) (laughs) And Ethel tells her that um, grandma's gone to visit somebody and the sister says she's she needs to stay for a few days. And she's like, what's all this blood all over the floor? (laughs) And Ethel says that she cut herself. Yeah. Looks at the floor. I cut myself. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you, you can reasonably believe that the sister is so desperate for a place to stay that she's just like, whatever. I don't care. Yep. She says that their their mom, I guess their mom like went off with a man and but she stopped drinking. And the sister says that mom's better off sleeping with that little brown man than being drunk all the time. <laughs> and uh, she tells Ethel that there is a guy, John, who might come looking for her, but she doesn't ever want to see him again because he beat the shit out of her. Doesn't even come up with a euphemism. Just, nope. yep, nope. Hey, as an aside, where does this movie take place? Do you know where it was filmed? I don't. Um, it looks like Chicago to me, but I'm yeah. not positive. It looks like Northeast U.S. We, we soon find out that the sister is bringing men home, that she's prostituting herself. And... We also see a really gross scene where she wakes up and then looks over at the end table and there's a beer can that she's been putting out cigarettes in, but she drinks the rest of it. It it it, it seems like they're trying to make her as repulsive as Ethel is. Just in a different way. Yeah, I could see that. Um, I mean, ultimately, though, I don't think... You know, it's comparable to have a psychotic killer next to someone who's selling their body. I don't think there's too much of a comparison. (laughs) No, but I can see the mind that would think there was. Yeah, I mean, I guess the public opinion of sex workers was definitely more 
dire back then. <laughs> and it, it's interesting because, you know, at one point she tells Ethel, like, I'm going to be bringing a lot of friends home, if you know what I mean. And I don't think Ethel knows what she means. Like, Ethel seems really naive and innocent somehow. I mean, yeah, she she's obviously had some kind of stunted development. I mean, just look at what she's wearing. It is kind of like a kid's uniform. Yeah, that's what it reminded yeah. me of. And then like the little jog in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like Ethel's only priority is food. Yeah, especially if it's dessert. Yeah, she's got the mentality of like a, a I guess like a 250 pound homicidal kid. Yeah. The um the sister complains about the smell coming out of grandma's room. And Ethel says, you know, the door's locked and grandma has the key. And the sister says, grandma must have shit all over the bed before she left. <laughs> I know so, it's for plot reasons, but it's it's a good thing the sister didn't automatically assume grandma was dead in the the bedroom because i don't know i would have think like oh god grandma's really old maybe she just died in there and that's what i would have thought um i also the like movie would have been over right yeah yeah well ethel decides that she must have to bury her so she she goes out to the backyard to dig a hole for grandma and she has this conversation with the neighbor uh, she tells him that she's got to bury a dead cat. And he says, the ground's too rocky. She won't be able to dig very deeply. And she digs like a few inches and gives up. Speaking of authentic people in this film, this guy was probably the actual neighbor. He seems like house. it. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. thought for sure this dude was going to come back and get murdered. But nope, that that was his that was his performance. No, nope, yep. Just this scene. Um but she throws the shovel. She's like really frustrated. And so instead she just puts like an air freshener, like a diffuser in the room. Yeah. What is, what the fuck is this thing? I've never seen anything like this. Is this like a Glade air freshener from the seventies? Yes. Like, yeah, that's the comparison I'd make. Ew. Yeah. It looks real gross. Babies? I don't know. I don't know if they make great big ones like that. Maybe. <laughs> Yeah, maybe like there's like a small Etsy community that's like dedicated to the fine craft of d bottled diffusers. What what are these? I don't, maybe that's like a maybe that's like an industrial sized one. Oh, okay. Either way, it looks gross. Well, the sister's boyfriend or pimp or both. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, John, uh, the guy who beat her up, he comes and he finds her in a bar he's like you know i don't i don't blame you for being angry and that other woman didn't mean anything to me uh and he follows her home and uh he said he's pretty blunt he says he followed this other woman to la for the money but she ended up not having any so he came back and uh he just wants some good loving uh the sister says there's a knot hole in the back fence and he can try that the steady escalation of this scene was really uncomfortable to me because she meets him in the bar and she says, you know, fuck off. And then the next scene is they're both at the house and she lets them in the front door and she tells them about the fence. And then the next scene, they're in bed together. Yeah, it's clearly a an abusive relationship in which she has been like groomed to do whatever he wants. But... 
and, and this is really awful. And yet I laughed because it's just so obnoxious. Um, he's telling her that he loves her. And she says, well, then why come you beat the hell out of me? And uh, let's just play this line. Rosalie, I'm going to tell you the truth for once, okay? You need a good beating every once in a while. All women do. And you especially. Okay? And yeah, it's okay, because they start to have sex. So how do you uh, react to this line? Like, is it... Just is like, ah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, like, this has to be bad even for the time, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think what they're trying to do is, like, make these people out to be unlikable, like, sleazy people, but they're going overboard. And not in the ironic John Waters way, in the, like, we don't know how else to make our point way. <laughs> we don't know how else to make our point way. That's all I can imagine. <laughs> but I like that that line's here. Like, I like... I mean, I hate these kinds of characters, but I like hating them. Yeah, they're not designed to be liked. <laughs> I hope not. Oh. This guy doesn't even need the help. Like, even if this line was excluded from the film, uh, like, this, there's so many other reasons to justify this man's eventual and inevitable murder and, and and yet there's there's so many things about this character that are just bizarre and and this is another thing that makes the movie authentic to me or authentic feeling um like there's one scene where he's putting makeup all over his face yeah and she laughs at him and he's like no all you know hollywood stars they all wear makeup it, it's just such a weird quirk and a weird scene to have in there that's not necessary. Well, he did run away to L.A. with this woman. Maybe he picked that up there and was just trying to integrate it into his lifestyle. And that's why she was so taken aback by it, because she hadn't seen him do anything like that before. Yeah. Well, we see Ethel's childishness, childishness in the next scene. Uh the the doctor her doctor shows up at the door and as soon as she sees it's him she just slams the door tries <laughs> like, to like the problem will just go away but yeah he forces his way in and starts going up the stairs because he says i, I want to see your grandmother like i'm going away and i want to know why you're not showing up for your um electric shock treatments and she kills him too she bangs him over the head with like a candlestick, I think it is. Yeah, she did him in clue style. And again, it's vicious. Like, this is a big, heavy thing that she's just like bashing him with. Ethel's got enough uh, crazy strength behind her that she could essentially use anything she wants as a deadly weapon. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And it would probably look vicious when she was doing it. Like, oh, God, it's paint everywhere. <laughs> So the bodies are piling up in grandma's room when and then the next morning when when John comes down to breakfast and he sees Ethel for the first time, he says, Jesus, what the hell have you been eating? 
and uh and he does this mean thing where he like mocks Ethel about eating sweet rolls. He's like, "Can you spare one for me?" You know. Um, but right she after gives him one, yeah, she gives him one, which is crazy. Well, there are moments that suggest, and this is true in the second one too. There's these moments that suggest like. Ethel will do something nice for you, albeit reluctantly. Almost like the way you can goad a selfish kid into like doing something nice once in a while. But it what right, follows is the makeup scene. Yeah. So right after this, the makeup scene happens and he slaps her in the face. He slaps his girlfriend in the face and calls her a stupid whore. But then the next scene they're making out and he's calling her beautiful. Are we going to ignore the the scene itself, how it's filmed? Uh, I don't I didn't write down how it was filmed. This back this backhand that he delivers, it's very clearly in slow motion or it's intentionally he is moving as if in slow motion. No, I think it's in slow motion. Yeah. Uh, But it just looks very, very fake. He just pushed his hand across her. It doesn't strike me as that. I thought it looked really silly. <laughs> that out of place. I yeah, think when I go into a movie like this, I just accept that like there's going to be paint blood and and sloppy stunt work. Like I don't have very high expectations. We glossed over this completely, but I feel like it has to be mentioned. The editing, especially in the beginning of this film, is uh, it's awful. That's the best word you can put it. You know the scene where they're in the hospital and you have the doctor talking to the grandma? Yeah. Oh, my God, that editing. Thank God that didn't last for the entirety of the film. Yeah, that for the first couple of scenes are really confusing, the way they're edited. Oh, it's not confusing. It's just like 16 cuts in one minute. I it I found it confusing. I was like, what, wait, what? Where are we going now? Like Less than a minute. Yeah. Anyway, so... This is when we see Ethel eating the huge gallon of ice cream in front of the TV. And John and her sister, her name's Rosalie. I keep calling her sister, but John and Rosalie are doing coke. And uh, Ethel asks what it is. And they tell her that it's nasal medicine that the doctor prescribed. She's like, oh, this, this is her naivete again. That's something a child would believe. Yeah. I like how she's just eating an entire, it's not even a a gallon of ice cream. It's like a loaf of ice cream inside a a glass baking tray. Yeah, I thought maybe it was like an ice cream cake of some kind. (laughs) I don't, it's very weird looking. It's like they dumped a a, a, you know, a package of ice cream into a, into a glass pan. Have you ever had like a Viennetta? No. It's a, um. They tried to bring it back recently. I don't know if it succeeded, but it's a product by Briars, not a sponsor. That's was marketed as like a a high upper class uh, uh, deluxe ice cream dish, and it's instead of being served as a gallon, it looked more like a like a fancy log shape, and the top of it of the ice cream, depending on the flavor was uh, coated in like a hard chocolate coating. And this looks like a really fat slug version of that. 
Yeah, I'm I'm not really an ice cream person or cold desserts person at all. I <laughs> I prefer hot desserts. But anyway, okay. so the as as they're watching as they're watching TV, um a police officer, a detective shows up and he's looking for the delivery boy, the grocer. Um, I was wondering when someone was going to come looking for this grocery boy. Yeah. Um and this is the scene where Ethel is like very obviously lying and like averting her eyes and acting all shifty. But she says that she doesn't know anything about that. And he brought the food and she paid him. And uh, the detective says, well, maybe he's just, you know, playing with your $80 in Tijuana. Because again, that's like $400 in today's money. Yeah. But John... Uh, he leaves. He's satisfied, at least for now. But Rosalie is, I guess, going out on the street tonight. And John tells her, stop wasting time and get going. She's like, I want a coat. It's cold outside. And he tells her she doesn't need a coat, that she shouldn't cover up her butt. So again, just like, this guy's a piece of shit. Like, he's just a piece of shit character. They, um, John and Rosalie wake up in the middle of the night about the smell coming from grandma's room and you know they think there's something dead and they ask ethel for the key she's like i don't smell anything and she says grandma's got the key and john wants to break in but ethel says you know grandma's gonna be back tomorrow let's wait till then and then she can open it and we don't have to we don't have to ruin her door and later on, we see that she has a meat cleaver beneath her pillow. And I love her blanket, by the way. It's very 70s. It's got like sunflowers on it or something. I was very into this blanket. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> and so it's obvious she's going to kill Rosalie and John. And at this point, I was like, you know, if she had just stopped, she probably could have gotten away with this. Like, the only person they're looking for is the, the grocery kid. But she just couldn't stop. But how was she supposed to get rid of these two suspicions without setting them off? Yeah, I, I don't know. But they're, they're light sleepers, so she conceivably could not have taken them the bodies out of Grandma's room. Yeah. I mean, okay, the right play, the right strategy would have been to not have the bodies in Grandma's room at all. <laughs> right. But, you know, we're dealing with, like, a, you know, an insane, murderous psychopath with the capacity of a child, the mental capacity of a child. So, obviously, she's not going to, you know, figure this shit out from the get-go. Nothing is planned here. No. She is no. flying by the, the seat of her pants. And that's what separates this one from the second one. Yes. That's why I don't buy her character as much in the second one. So, but naturally... She sleeps with a meat cleaver. Of course. In case she needs to cut meat in the middle of the night. <laughs> no, she goes after Rosalie and John. And this scene is actually really like effectively brutal and disturbing, um, which is why I think I saw it in four different movies this week. <laughs> oh, no. It's in Criminally Insane 2. It's in Death Nurse. And it's in Death Nurse 2. Okay, so in... The sequel, it's played as a flashback. How do they play this off in these other movies? As a dream sequence. 
what <laughs> because because priscilla alden is in those movies too playing a different character who also kills people and these are dreams that she has oh okay it doesn't really work it's just an excuse to get the footage in there again but rosalie wakes up as john is being killed by a meat cleaver to the face and ethel's like i'm going to have to kill you both you shouldn't have tried to go in grandma's room and then the sister screams and i i think this is one of the best screams i've ever seen in a horror movie yeah yeah no she is she actually sounds like she's about to get murdered yeah it is a horrifying scream and ethel you know <laughs> ethel's probably cleaver. ethel's probably the most vicious cleaver that i've ever seen in a movie part of what i think sells it and it's not realistic at all but when she's like slamming the cleaver down it's almost as if it's just like making thunk noises instead of like actual chopping noises that you would hear kind of like uh if you were to bang a knife against a cutting board that's the knife that's the yeah. noise it's making but there's no cutting board here but it, it does give the scene an extra like juicing of, of brutality and, I mean, it doesn't look real. It's not like going into them. But if you can suspend a, a disbelief about the effects, then... Yeah, no no cut marks on anybody. They're just all covered in paint crawling around. But again, it's not about the effects here. I, one thing we see, like, a change in Ethel's character now is she's beginning to, like, be gleeful about this. Like, granted, John was mean to her and Rosalie, but he manages to crawl down the hallway and she just follows him laughing at him like looking down and mocking the fact that he's struggling to get away like she's not this is not just reactive anymore now she's becoming outright cruel but after she has them killed she puts them back in bed together oh yeah she says i'm gonna leave you alone in here just like before i know you want to be alone sometimes i could hear you I know you, what you were doing with John, Rosalie. And she smirks like she knows the, the dirtiest secret possible. Do you think she's like really delusional and thinks that they have some sort of life as corpses? Or do you think she's just mocking them? I mean, she's schizophrenic. It could be anything. I mean, it's also not real, so it could be anything. But, you know, I I don't think this is out of character. I think this is a natural progression of... You know this character's illness that she is starting to i guess like imagine they're still around in some way that they're not truly dead i don't know i mean she's probably just off her medication too but I she this is, this is followed by the scene where she's like eating on a plate with like five potatoes, five <laughs> yeah. potatoes. <laughs> well well first we have a dream sequence She's lying next to John's dead body, and we see her repeatedly run down the hallway with a knife. Um, and then she stabs and chops up a mannequin yeah. that's in, like, negative sepia tones. And she drives past a graveyard and washes the meat cleaver. And she runs down the stairs and through the woods in like a red nightgown with lots of costume jewelry and makeup. This is um, what I'm talking about when like you don't really pay attention to what she's wearing until this scene. Yeah, I mean, this I was like, 
is this where they got the idea for the Wuthering Heights music video? Like, <laughs> it's, it's the exact look. Um, uh, running through the forest and everything. Yeah, the exact look, but like uh, three times the <laughs> the amount. Yeah, and so the the next time we see her after she's awake, she kind of looks wearing... like the Kool Aid Man going down the stairs. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. But we see her in a different outfit right after in like a purple dress. And I was I was thinking, what if this is this might be thinking too deep, but what if they're trying to show us that like she's just now beginning to feel confident and showing personality like she had to start killing people and like, you know, be liberated. But now she's actually expressing herself in clothes. Mm, maybe. I mean, we definitely know she's not buying you know what it might be right because in the in the one clip that we played in the beginning grandma's talking about how she bought new clothes for ethel maybe this is part of that new wardrobe and she just finally decided to put part of it on. oh yeah that's a good point it looks like a parachute it does <laughs> well there's another death scene because one of rosalie's johns show up and uh very rudely barges in. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm here to see Rosalie. Rosalie! As, as he runs up the stairs. Um, One thing that this movie does have in common with like the, the popular slasher films at the time is that it provides either, you know, overtly or otherwise um, justification for these characters to get murdered in some way. Like, they all have bad character traits, and that's why it's okay for them to die. Yeah. Yeah, there's no innocence in this movie. But this guy was especially egregious. Just barges right in and ignores Ethel. Well, this is also around where we see Ethel to try to control the, spell, the smell. She starts spraying Lysol or air freshener around the room. And like actually soaking the bodies, like spraying it right in grandma's face. You were skipping over how this dude dies. Oh, I was, unless you want to talk about it. Yo, she straight MMA chokes him to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Brutal ethyl strength. This man didn't stand a chance. He he makes it's not a quick thing. It actually takes a long time. Yeah, the, it's long. The noises sound kind of stupid, but overall the scene's really brutal. So you know, earlier you mentioned they actually dropped, uh, they actually bonked Grandma's head on the stairs. Did they actually spray her in the face with lemon pledge too? Yes. No. Yeah. yeah oh, they, no. They, I was joking. They talked about what a trooper she was during the interview, saying, like, you know, she had to get sprayed in the face. She didn't have to be. No. This is, they, That's got to be a carcinogen, too. Oh, this no. is authenticity here. This is. Uh, That's a word for it. Authen yeah. It's authentic. <laughs> Let's ignore, uh, like, brutal. Oh, well. Necessary. I and then right after Savage. she finishes right after she finishes Lysol cool. I, I I really like her acting here the she walks out to the living room holding the meat cleaver and the detective is sitting there on the couch and he's like you're you know you forgot to close your door um, and he's very apologetic I, I I couldn't 
figure out if he was on to her at this point or if he was sincerely being apologetic. I might be imprinting a little bit, but I have a feeling that he was not very sincere with his apology about the door being open. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure at this point she is suspect number one, because at this point he has interviewed friends and family of the missing victim and has come to the conclusion that this person is not the character to steal from their employer. <laughs> right. But... Ethel is holding this meat cleaver and she sets it to the side and she's like, I was going to chop some firewood. Yes. And, and, and she makes up this whole story about how she saw somebody follow the delivery guy. She says he was a short colored man and that he had a gun and the detectives like, if he had a gun, you didn't call the police. She's like, Oh, well he didn't have a gun. But he had his pot hand in his pocket like he had a gun. And anyway, it's clearly not true. And I don't think the detective believes it. But no, not not a bit of it. But he doesn't have evidence to, you know, prove something you know more grievous has happened. Right. And if you think this kind of lying is uh unbelievable, I mean obviously the story itself is unbelievable, but really stupid fucking criminals lie exactly like this and you can yeah. watch a lot of interrogation videos to to see this shit in action in the real world i i actually thought it was um i mean it's kind of funny but it also seems realistic to me it doesn't seem like it's bad acting that's what my wife thought it was just bad acting it it's so bad it's real like it's so believable it's bad <laughs> I don't yeah know, there's, yeah there's something in there whichever order meta. that goes in there's a whole after this there's a whole like it's almost like a physical comedy routine where she drags the bodies in trash bags out to the car and then drives them to this cliff where she's gonna throw them over but every time she takes one out a car comes and so she drags it back to the car <laughs> what do you think of this scene this seemed a little unnecessary and also like you know who the fuck is looking at you when you're driving or when they're driving on the side of the road, right? I mean, okay, so Ethel might not have like the problem solving capability to like recognize that. But there's got to be some other place to put these bodies besides this one spot, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's not. She's not all there. No, we can't really hold her to the same standards as like someone who could be, uh, you know, convicted for first degree murder. No, I don't think she's being rational. No, no, not at all. But when she gets back to the the house, she just like parks the car real crazy crooked with the trunk open. I thought and, for sure grandma was going to end up on the highway somewhere. Uh, they may have if they'd had the budget. But um, it, this is our this is our resolution where the the neighbor sees a hand and screams and the detective shows up. And he's going through the house looking for Ethel. And then he sees Ethel eating an arm. And he says, my God. And then it fades to black. So what do you think of this shock ending? It seemed a little abrupt. I think this is where they ran out of money. Yeah, but the, um, the final shocking scene of her eating the arm is so 70s. And I think it actually would have been shocking at the time. 
These bodies would have been so putrid at this point that there would be no way she could keep it down. I've thought about that. One thing they, they mentioned in the interview is that they created that rotting flesh look which does not look real, by the way, but it yeah. is definitely a look. Um, they used avocado face masks <laughs> and let them dry and start to peel. Hmm. So yeah, we see we see Ethel eating an arm. My God. My God. All right, you want to give your final thoughts and a rating on this first one? This movie is only an hour long, like an hour minute. Maybe an hour, almost two minutes. It feels longer, but uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing. This film, um, as you mentioned in the beginning, it definitely is. It definitely fits like the iconic feel of like these grungy mid seventies films that focus on a homicidal character. Yeah, the effects are lame, but the content. And the relationships between these these characters are what you're here for. I just can't get over how brutal some of these scenes are. And like if you were to if they were to have a slightly higher budget or perhaps more talent to work with the budget they had to, to create better effects. Like I imagine this movie could actually be better if they just had the right talent working on it. But as as it stands now, um, I think this is totally worth watching this first century. It's good. It's to the point. I'm, I'm have the movie playing on mute in the background, and the neighbor just found the hand <laughs> in the trunk. Based, this movie gives you a really bad first impression. The first like two minutes, the editing and the audio balance are so bad that it really made me dread the rest of it. But thankfully. It's just like a little bit of turbulence at the beginning of your flight. It levels out pretty quick. Again, just look past the bad effects and enjoy the movie for just the strange characters. And of course, Ethel's performance. Um, this actress does a very good job at selling this character. If, you know, if, if she didn't do such a good job, maybe this movie wouldn't have... Uh, Maybe this movie wouldn't have hit the 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 same the same kind of quality, right? I, I definitely think it hinges on her. Yeah, it definitely hinges on her. That said, like her sister, uh, Rosalie, I think her actress plays her character really well. And uh the scumbag pimp boyfriend, I think also does his role really well. This you know, this looks like a movie that would have bad acting, but everybody does a really good job. Yeah, right. I totally, I told, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, and you know, compared to the sequel that we're about to get into, um, you're gonna get, you're gonna see how much could have gone wrong in the making of the first one, but <laughs> but somehow it all panned out, and this is actually a pretty cool film. It that definitely feels a lot longer than an hour, um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I, I want to give this like. Two and a half, three stars. Like I think, like three stars is probably a good, a good, good rating for this film, despite the the middling problems it has. Because I think everything else it just does so well. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it because I know you're dreading watching it. Um, but I am so happy that this movie exists. I love the 
simplicity of it. I love the short running time. Um, it just any longer would not work. I, I love the authenticity of it, like how real it feels. I love that it walks this weird blurry line between dark comedy and like true disturbing content. It's the tone of the movie is really hard to peg, which I think some could see as a flaw, but I actually think is a strength. But this is also my jam, right? Like 70s exploitation flicks with weird characters trapped in houses together. Like this is the kind of stuff I live for. So this is a this is really is one of my favorite tapes. Um, I think that Priscilla Alden, I mean, I've been praising her performance the whole episode, but I really do think she's fantastic. Um, and she's she's great in all of his f movies that I've seen. Uh, she's easily the best part of, of all of them and probably the only reason to watch. But yeah, um, I'm gonna be crazy and give this four stars. <laughs> I, w I was gonna give it three and a half, but it, talking about it and like thinking back through it, it's it's pushed it's pushed up to four. You don't think maybe maybe we oversold it a little bit? And you're I don't think into the so. Height. I mean, my over my my caveat is this: you have to like this era and type of film. And I know some people don't, but like if you're a fan of like the first couple movies we did, like um, Blood and Lace and uh, Private Parts, like that era of movie, I think you'll like this. But you have to like that period and you have to like low budget filmmaking and be able to overlook like bad special effects and, you know, odd editing and things like and just look at it as almost like shot on video movie, as I say, are a different medium. I think this is if, if you make a movie for thirty thousand dollars set in one place and, and pull it off like that's different than, you know, a quote unquote real movie. So yeah, I'm gonna give it four stars. If this movie came out like ten years later, it would have been filmed on video. Oh yeah, for sure. Evidenced by the awful sequel we're about to discuss. Yeah, so we're not gonna go through this whole thing. Uh, no. Most of it is footage from the first one, but let's just talk briefly uh, about the second one. So the story is the same basically she she starts in an asylum but because there's major budget cuts they have to release her and she moves into a kind of like halfway house um with other people who are who i guess have mental illnesses so yeah what what did you like about this movie anything uh nothing i didn't like anything about this <laughs> it i already mentioned the outfit which i thought was funny um, this one is shot on video and definitely looks it. Um, I'm pretty sure they reused the credits from the first movie. Uh, they they did. Did they it's, film a fucking TV playing the original credits? Yes. Fuck. Well, that sets yes. the tone for this film. I, I actually think that's how they edited in all of the flashbacks. If they did not film a TV screen, they used a, a VCR to splice them in because it looks very messy i didn't get that impression for the flashbacks but it wouldn't surprise me no the 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 uh, the visual quality the audio quality is like notably degraded um from the first one it's it's bad 
All right, so let let me let me break this down. Actually, do you want to go through the whole plot and then we'll break it down? Because we can do this plot in like two and a half minutes. I, I mean, I don't even think there's a point. She moves into a halfway house and gradually starts killing people for various reasons. I think we should talk about the characters, the other okay. people living here. Well, I don't know. Before we get into the characters, I, I just want to point out that this movie, like the, the theme of this film is padding. That is the main theme. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, there is a one minute, 10 second scene of someone eating pudding. The <laughs> film, that's one hour long. <laughs> yeah. There's so way too many minutes of, a, of an insane guy dancing <laughs> and frolicking the, and like fondling the air. <laughs> he thinks he's a spider. There... <laughs> There's two minutes of some Pauly Shore looking knockoff dishing out dog food in a kitchen. <laughs> and then I, I am positive half of this movie, just half of it in general, of all the scenes are just actors awkwardly staring at one another off frame. <laughs> while, while the handheld camcorder zooms in and out on their faces. It's almost like they couldn't get any of the actors to work on the same day. So then they couldn't have everyone be in their own shot. Everyone had to be in their own shots because they couldn't get them together. That's what it felt like. Well, I will. So between this movie and the two death nurse movies, these are Nick Millard hallmarks. The the zooming in and out with the handheld camcorder, the very long shots of people staring off into space or uh, eating or just walking around like all shot on video movies have that crap to a degree but here it's <laughs> excessive um and egregious and egregiously bad but i don't hate this movie i don't know why but i don't hate it you should i i like the people who stay here so there's the there's the spider guy that dances around the yard forever and it, there's also a very long scene of him climbing a wall or acting like he's climbing a wall there's the woman who runs the place who ethel thinks is her grandmother and calls granny but this person also plays a social worker and death nurse i don't know if it's supposed to be the same character but she's in both Ethel thinks that there's this other guy who stays there is a cop, is the cop that arrested her, but it's not. It's just some other person. Not even the same actor. No, or looks the same. He doesn't look the same. No. Although this guy is also in the Death Nurse films. Um, he plays another character in those. But like, look, this film came out over 10 years apart from the original, so... You know, you could conceivably say, like, you know, some of these people have changed their looks over time. And that's why I had to double check to make sure this guy wasn't the same actor. And no, it's it's just Ethel's uh, delusion. Yeah. But, you know, her performance in this one is different. Like I said earlier, like she premeditates in this one. I, I think she's much more like sadistic and joyful in this one. Like she's not so reactive. She's clearly taking pleasure in killing people. Um, I think it's more self-aware in this one. Like, there's a little more humor to it or attempted humor. But I still like her. I still think she's a good actress. 
you know, and her there might not be anything wrong with her particular performance, even if you ignore the the new character flaws that emerge. But all of the other people in this film are so bad at acting. Every single one. Like the acting is so wooden. Like it, it gave my senses splinters. It is so bad. Yeah, if you thought this was bad, don't watch the Death Nurse movies because it's all the same actors, and I think they're even worse. How did it get like this? How do you go from the first criminally insane to this? I think the first one was a fluke, and this is the this is the standard. Oh, you know, I don't I don't even have anything else in my notes that's worth discussing on this one. <laughs> I, I did write down that there was a very long, awkward conversation about tea where Ethel was talking to one of the other people who stays there about the tea she's poisoned, and they keep going back and forth like, I only like tea if it's hot enough. Yeah, if it's not hot enough, I won't drink it. You're right about that. It's got to be the right temperature. <laughs> like It just goes on and on. I think that was kind of just like uh, two psychopaths playing chicken with one another. I, I think so too, but it, regardless, it's long and awkward. That That's this entire film, long and awkward. I mean, it's about the same length as the first one, but somehow there's less content. Yeah. This is why I thought maybe this guy had like good intentions coming into the sequel because he wanted to to film something to you know match the quality of the first one but maybe there wasn't a lot of planning and by the end of you know filming either he ran out of money or they just realized what they had wasn't much of a film so then they had to pad it with as much like garbage as they could uh, about a quarter of the first film is played out as flashbacks yep. throughout the sequel yeah, I'd say there's a good half hour here. A good half the running time of the, footage from the original. And that would mean like half the original film is in this one. Yep. Oh, although God. it although some of the shots are shown over and over again, like the bedroom murder from the first one. Was it? Uh, they, they all kind of started to blend together after after a bit. Well, maybe I'm blending it together with the Death Nurse movies because they show it too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like the beginning of this film is literally original scene, flashback, original scene, flashback, original scene, flashback. And then there's this space in the middle where it's all original content. But again, it's just scenes that are very drawn out. Nothing's happening. I'm not kidding when I say there's two minutes of a guy dishing out dog food and that's the scene. No dialogue, no music. There's no music, there's no soundtrack to this film outside of uh, the flashbacks. Yeah, I mean, like I said, like a lot of shot on video movies have these same features or flaws depending on how you want to look at them. Um but it there's there's no justification here. Like like I said, it it's the reverse of your suspicion, which is that this framework was made as an excuse to release scenes from the original over again. Well, if you ever thought, uh, 10 people who consistently listen to us, that we plan this shit out before we start recording, this this is proof that we don't. 
I will say that may have been hit, you know, his is this might have been a cash grab of some kind, but I think it kind of worked like this VHS is more common than the first one. Just because they made more copies of it doesn't mean it's valuable or good. Yeah, it. I mean, it doesn't sell for as much or anything. But, I mean, um, like the, the basic example is look at, um you know, E.T. for by Atari, right? Like, you know, that story. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, the, millions of copies made of that game, but the game itself was trash, didn't sell. And then there's so many copies that just got put in a landfill. Yeah, actually, I'll I'll. M- I'll insert a plug for um, my friends over at Laser Graves podcast because they did a whole episode about the ET Atari j- dump and went into like the history of Atari and how that game ended up being produced. And it's a very interesting listen. So I suggest everyone goes and checks out Laser Graves. I will say, though, the character the Ethel was playing homicidal chicken with with the T yeah, um, I thought he was interesting in that he was in there because he uh, like what murdered his his three wi- at least three wives. Yeah, he brags a few times about the things he did and got away with. He says like his first wife in one scene and then I think third wife in another scene. <laughs> so we can just assume they all unfortunately met some uh, some garbage fate. But but he too has been released by the system. Due to budget cuts system yeah yeah leave it up to the liberals passing prop 13 right i mean i think the standard for releasing them was like they can't have harmed another patient in the last five years but like ethel killed six people it's it's a, egregious it is okay i have a real life story i can relate to here but you'll have to remove it from the podcast <laughs> Leland, go ahead and give your final thoughts and a rating. It is so bizarre going from what is essentially an iconic, grungy, you know, mid-70s film to this schlock. This is awful. Uh, this this whole film, this whole sequel, plays like a like a clips episode from the bygone age of television before the internet, where uh, you know, the casual audience viewership of a show could get caught up with some recaps of any episodes they might have missed. If For those out there who have never heard of a Clips episode before, um, that's essentially what this movie be. And uh, it's a concept that's sorely dated and not missed by anyone of, of any modern consumer of media so this movie didn't age well at all. It feels very low effort in, in general because there's so much padding. And then what is original is just drawn out. And you can make an argue, you can probably argue about some artistic merit to drawing out these scenes and how it's supposed to make the viewer uncomfortable or whatever, you know, make you like 
pause and examine like the own existential ennui of your life or whatever but it, it sucks as entertainment value it sucks and i don't think there's anything redeemable about this uh if ethel's <laughs> ethel's uh, character performance can't save it i i struggle to think of something that would i'm thinking about the the murder scenes in this film and somehow they're even more low tech than the first film uh which is i guess kind of amazing there's a scene where ethel uh creates like a a like a noose out of what appears to be twine <laughs> and hooks a dude coming up a staircase with it and then she uses her massive ethel strength <laughs> to hoist this man off the ground and and hang him <laughs> despite the fact that this is just twine <laughs> like really man you couldn't even use like a like a rope or like a bungee cable or, or something that would actually hold the weight I don't know. It, he's he's industrious. She's industrious, know? right? <laughs> well, the Nick Millard uses what's oh. on hand. No, you're you're right. Um, I, I this is this is uh, Frozen Scream territory for me. Uh, this is a zero star film for me. I enjoyed watching this more than Frozen Scream. There are things I like about it. Even the the like awkward pauses and long staring off into space scenes, like. There is a an endearing quality of that to me, and, and maybe it's just from watching shot on video movies and kind of getting used to it. But mainly, I I, I like Priscilla Alden again in this. Um, I I'm thankful for Mick, Nick Millard, even though these movies are awful. At least he was giving her acting roles, and I think she totally deserves it. Uh, I think she's fantastic in the Death Nurse movies too, playing a totally different character. I like all the other characters the the spider guy and the the guy who murdered all his wives and the the social worker like I, i'm fine with all these characters but there's no movie here this is not a movie it, it's a it's a best of reel with um a few new scenes shot it's it's clearly a cash grab it's clearly an attempt to recapture the glory of the original and like put a note a new tape on video store shelves but like i said at the beginning i, I at least respect nick made more movies than i've made so um i have to give some props to that uh anyway I, i'm not gonna go zero i think i'll give this one one star e even that is too generous uh, i feel okay about it all right, so next week, we're going to have a total change of pace, um, but do one of the holy trinity of 1980s horror remakes and one of, has to be one of the most entertaining horror films of all time with the best practical effects of all time. And that is the 1988 version of The Blob, which Leland has never seen. He just recently watched the first one. What do you think of the 1958 one? It's a movie that I think is is ripe for a modern rendition, seeing as spoilers, they can't kill the blob in the end. Instead, they throw it into the Arctic where humanity will be safe as long as it stays cold. Well, the 80s, 80s one, it, 30 years later, 1988, 
and um it it's not it's not a sequel it's definitely a remake but uh it this the thing and the fly are, are often called the holy trinity of of 80s remakes and this might be my favorite of those films better than the the thing really it's i think it's on par with the thing okay. i think i think the, the thing and the blob are, are pretty even in my books yeah which isn't that popular of an opinion i think um the thing gets more respect than this movie but i think this totally deserves more attention than it gets and um in that way maybe it is uh you know consistent with the kind of stuff we cover because as much love as this movie gets it it's not talked about nearly enough yeah i guess we kind of run like a an orphanage for forgotten films yeah and forgotten depressing traumatic overly violent discriminatory films and i think 1988's the blob is a super fun movie to watch but compared to the original especially this is a dark fucking movie like if you haven't seen it watch it and join us next week um as we talk about the blob in the meantime you can follow us on instagram at video.store.nightmares um where i post everything we do and uh, Leland, do you have any last words? Thank you for your continued support. Awesome. Have a good week, everybody. Enjoy the blob, and we'll talk to you soon.